0: Now this morning we are continuing on our series uh, in Revelation, and I had so much to remember in my head. I feel like I've got a like a brain dump now, right? There's small groups, and there's membership, and there's chocolate mousse. I didn't even talk about baptism. I didn't talk in detail about the passageway being constructed or the parking lot that's outside. I talked about so many. There's so many things going on. And I want to push all those out of my head uh, because this morning we're in part three of Revelation. And I, I just—if you've, have you been here? If you raise your hand, if you've been here maybe the last week or two and heard part one or part two, I just commend you for coming back. Um, man, I mean, this is heavy stuff, right? I mean, this is Jesus kind of talking to us and and uh, and really laying it laying it on us. And and you know, the pastor in me kind of gets home on Sunday afternoon and thinks. They're not coming back next week, you know, they're they're not. I'm just so proud of you uh, for coming back. But, you know, in this passage, I mean, Jesus is pretty serious. And if you think about it, uh, why Jesus is so serious, I mean, Jesus, his story is pretty amazing. I mean, he's God from all of eternity, and yet he comes down to earth, takes on human form, lives his life surrounded by immorality, surrounded by people sinning and, and broken people, and he's the pure God, Right? And at the end of that, he doesn't end up bitter. He doesn't end up angry at us, right? Because if you know, if you're like morally superior in a situation, okay, hopefully it's happened at least once, and you, and you walk in, I mean, you get frustrated, right? You're like, why are these people cussing in front of my kids? Why, why does this have to be in this movie? This movie could just be a good movie if they just cut this out. And you just get frustrated, don't you? yes. Can you imagine Jesus living in the midst of all of this immorality? And then at the end of the day, what does he do? He says, I'm going to die for them. What an incredible story. What incredible grace. What an incredible Savior. And then, a few years in, people begin to tell this Jesus story, and they start twisting it up. They start saying, "You know, oh, yes, Jesus died so that you could sin and hurt other people and, 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 and hurt you know the, the people that you care about. And I mean, you think about how Jesus is upset at that. He's like, no, I died so the people could be free from sin, not so they could be released to sin. And so he comes and he's talking to these churches and he's talking to these people who are saying, oh, well, you can sin because Jesus died for you. And there's the excuse of the Nicolaitans. And today, you know, Jesus is going to address a specific person in Thyatira, a woman that he labels Jezebel. And we see that this passage, this letter to Thyatira, it's 11 verses long. It's the longest letter of these seven letters. And that's because we've been talking about a force that's come from the outside in, the Nicolaitans. But today we look at a force from the inside someone that is in the inside of the church, and talking, and leading people astray, and Jesus labels her as Jezebel. He, he creates a type. He creates a metaphor here, and, and it's important because I'm getting ready to read you some verses, and I mean, Jesus' language in these verses is pretty stern, okay, and I want you, I, I wanted to set the stage for you, and I also want you to realize it is a metaphor, and we'll unpack that just a little bit, okay, because Jesus is going to talk about killing kids, and uh, and so just look at it contextually, look at it as a metaphor, and, uh, and we'll, we'll get into it. So I just wanted to give you that before I read these letters, these particular words that are in red in our Bible, okay? To the angel of the church of Thyatira right? "'These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you have na- are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. God, we worship you and we magnify you. Lord, we acknowledge your authority over our lives, God. Lord, as we hear these hard words, as, as you guide and direct us, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. Lord, we uh, say that you are our Lord and Master, God, and we desire to show that that is true through, the, through um, God, the acts and the attitudes in our lives, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us, encourage us, strengthen us, God, to be effective for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen and amen. I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, and if you're not familiar with Huntsville, Alabama, Huntsville is a, a, a place where the space industry is really centered. A lot of the things that are developed and that eventually find their way to Houston or find their way to Cape Canaveral, those things begin in Huntsville with the engineers designing all those things. There are some big companies in Huntsville, Boeing and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and IBM and Ennegraph are all located uh, in Huntsville and working on the space industry. The Space and Rocket Center is there, and when I was a, a kid, the minor league team was called the Huntsville Stars, right, because everything's kind of about this guy. Now, they're the Rocket City Trash Pandas, and uh, Trash Panda is a raccoon, if you don't know, so it's, it's super cute, but uh, that, that's, you know, that's who they are, and as a kid, I didn't really understand the impact that an industry had on a community until things would go wrong with the space program. I don't know if you remember when the Hubble Telescope was first launched, uh, it didn't work, Um, and this was billions of dollars that was spent to put the Hubble telescope up. And I didn't know it as a kid, but all of my friends' dads, my mom owned a flower shop, but all my friends' dads were working on the Hubble telescope, right? And so you can imagine things were kind of a little little sad around, you know, when the Hubble telescope launched and it didn't work. Some of my friends' dads lost their jobs. They had to move away. Other of my friends, they didn't see their dads because their dads was at work. I mean, this is billions of dollars spent on something that's getting national attention. The same thing when the, the Challenger shuttle tragedy happened and, and the impact that that had on the community and, 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 and seeing that and, and feeling that. And then, uh, when the, of course, when the president would say there was a new space initiative, I would get a whole bunch of new friends <laughs> that would come. And they were all good at math because their parents were were engineers. And uh, I'm, I'm terrible at math. But just seeing how that industry just really impacted, even me as a kid, kind of the ebbs and flows of things. And, of course, as West Virginians, uh, I've been in West Virginia for 26 years now, so I've been here longer than anywhere, and I consider myself a West Virginian. Uh, we know that the coal industry, as it as it ebbs and flows, and and there's new regulations that that are not necessarily good and then there's new markets that are good and as as things happen that are good and things happen that are not good we see that ebb and flow in our culture too, right? Uh, When things are up it's up, right? And when things are down, it's, it's down. And we see that ebb and flow. And Thyatira was an industrial town. Thyatira was a place uh, where there were minerals and uh, different resources could be extracted from the ground. And so it grew up as an industrial city. The ebb and flow of the city of Thyatira was based on the industries that were there. Thyatira was initially uh, founded we, we might have skipped ahead, but give me that little map if you don't mind. Uh, Thyatira was initially uh, founded as, as a, um, a border town that was a defense garrison under Alexander the Great. And you can see how Thyatira is, is further up there, north and uh, east, and he's established Thyatira to defend from the west. So people that would try to attack uh, the rest of Asia Minor uh, from the east would have to go through Thyatira uh, in order to get there. But as Alexander the Great died and as the empire began to fade, Thyatira discovered all the minerals and things that they had in the ground and they became an industrialized city. So that they had industries, industries like copper and leather and bronze and wool and especially linen. Uh, back in the ancient culture, there were no artificial dyes. So if you wanted something a certain color, right? I look out here and we all have, you know, colored uh, shirts on. But if you wanted, I, I'm not there yet. Um, if you wanted to have, um, thank you. And uh, if, you, <laughs> if you wanted to have something a certain color, right? Then you had to you had to dye it. And, and Thyatira, the minerals in the water caused the dyes to not only take in the fabric, but also to pop, right? So if you had a red garment that was dyed in Thyatira, you could tell the difference because it was a brighter red color. If you had a purple garment uh, in Thyatira, you could tell because the the purple dye took into the fabric and it popped more, right? So it's like, you know, there wasn't Paris back then, it was Thyatira, right? You know, I got, uh, this was dyed in Thyatira. And with that purple dye, now now we've got this uh, shell here that you'll see. And if you can tell, that shell is really purple. And the little snail that lived in there, okay, Many of them gave their lives. (laughs) They gave their lives because uh, purple dye was derived from those snails drop by drop. Purple dye was uh, derived from the matter plants there. You can see they're kind of reddish purple. And it was very hard to extract purple dye. And so if you go to all the trouble to extract the purple dye, thousands of those shells, right, just to get enough to to dye a garment And, and a lot of work with the matter plant, you would want to make sure that that dye had its greatest effect, right? That it popped, that it set into the fabric. So you would take that dye to Thyatira, and you would um, dye those linens. And we know Lydia uh, was a seller of purple, and purple was the color of divinity, and it was the color of royalty because it was so expensive and so difficult uh, for them to get that into the fabric. And Thyatira became a place known by their industry. Their bronze, their copper, their leather, all of these things, became, they became known, right? They were the outlet mall of the first century, right? You drive, you go to Tanger Outlets, they would go to Thyatira, okay, and find all of these things. So to protect these industries, guilds were created. The, the copper guild, the bronze guild, the linen guild, the wool guild. And a guild is similar to a labor union. The the idea is to protect the trade and to protect the workers, except a guild is a little bit different. In a guild, uh, the guild wanted to control your whole life. The guild said, well, obviously we're going to control your work, but you're also only allowed to associate with people in the guild. And they also controlled your religious belief because they believed that if you worshipped the gods in the right way, that they would give favor to the industry. Now, industries have always been subject to trends. They've always been subject to the economy. They've always been subject to technology. Imagine if somebody found a better way to get purple dye into fabric, like Thyatira would be ruined, right? So what do you do? You keep the gods happy, and they protect your industry. It was the, the whole economy was on the back of all of these things. So this put the church and Christians in a really difficult spot. Because uh, the guilds, their, their uh, principal god was Apollos Trimeneus, and they would uh, have parties uh, at different times in the year, okay? Like the copper guys, they get January. I'm making this up, it's not true. The wool people, they get February. I'm just putting it on the calendar, okay? So you have an idea. But they would go and they would have their festival at a specific time. And all the members of that guild were expected to go to that festival and to worship the god Apollos in that temple. And if you didn't show up and you made Apollos mad, then somebody else could find a copper deposit somewhere else, right? But if you made Apollos happy, then he would protect your guild. And so each of the guilds, they would come together at their time and make their efforts to to keep Apollos happy so that he would protect their industry. And we've talked about what these festivals encompass. They encompass sexual immorality. They encompass meat offered to idols, which the Christians were specifically instructed not to eat. And so those Christian people had a, a real tension in their lives. Like, once a year it comes around, and you can imagine the anxiety that would be in them as, the, as that festival begins to approach. What are we going to do? Are we going to go? Are we not going to go? Are we going to participate? Or somebody going to notice? Maybe, you know, maybe one year they, they kind of stayed home, but they kind of hovered around in the right areas, and they didn't really go in, and they didn't really participate. But somebody saw them and assumed they were there, and they got away with it. And, the, and they were like, oh, well, this year's past. And then the next year comes, and that anxiety is there. Because if they somebody noticed that they weren't there, noticed that they weren't participating, they would be fired, and they wouldn't only be fired, but they would not be allowed to, to do their trade anywhere where the guild had influence. Any, any city where the guild would have influence, Thyatira or beyond, they would lose their job, and they would lose their trade. And being unemployed in the first century, right, I mean, it was completely different than being unemployed now. Like, you, you, you know, you, you transition between jobs and you say, well, I'm just, you know, you kind of take a week or two, right? No? Okay. Yeah, but, but in the first century, there was no support. Especially if your family was also a member of a guild, which was the common thing because they would hand it down from, from father to son. And if your family was part of the guild and they were required to shun you as well, that means that if you didn't participate in the festival that you could be fired, you could be alienated from your family, you could lose your trade the only way that you knew how to make money. And it was a pretty desperate situation. And so a woman, and she's not named in the scriptures, but Jesus labels her as Jezebel. A woman comes into the church and she begins teaching and saying, you know what, Jesus died for our sins and we have grace and certainly Jesus wouldn't want you to maybe lose your job. Certainly, Jesus wants you to provide for your family. And, and these people were under such pressure. I mean, I, I, want you to, I want you to feel that pressure just a little bit. The pressure to, to hear what they want to hear. Like, can you imagine, like, somebody comes and you're like, oh, no, you can serve Jesus and do this. This thing that they're so scared about, they're so anxious about. And then they hear somebody say, oh, no, you can do that. It's okay. Jesus is okay with that. Jesus is okay with that immorality. Jesus is okay with you disobeying direct commands of God and the, and the church. Jesus is okay with that. These people were hungry to hear that. And as this woman began to teach that, people began to say, okay, we buy it. And they began to buy in, and they began to go to these festivals and to do these things that are really just abominable things that would destroy their families, destroy their lives, and, and bring direct disobedience to God. But one of the things that I think is so key in this story is not just, I mean, this lady teaching false teachings, and we're going to talk about that in a second, and and that's obviously a a terrible thing, but how ready the people were to hear it. And you know, we have a tendency to lie to ourselves, and and we say, oh no, I'm moral, I would do the right thing all the time, and, and it doesn't matter what's happening around me. But the scriptures are always encouraging us to search our own hearts and to, to watch and say, uh, I, Am I waiting, just listening? If, if I hear a hint of somebody say, Oh no, Jesus is okay with this thing that I know in my heart is wrong, a- am, am I gonna take the bait? Am I gonna go? Am I gonna flow in that direction just because of all the pressure, the back pressure that I feel? I'm gonna go in that direction because some. Of this, I remember when I was growing up as a kid, and, and I wanted to listen to music that my mom didn't want me to listen to, and I just and on the album there would be one song that kind of, sort of, maybe referenced God or the Bible, right? You guys just give me the only sinner in the room vibes. Sometimes you guys are all you're like giggling, like you're such a sinner. I was a sinner, and. And if there was one song on the album that just kind of referenced Jesus, I would be like, Mom, look, they're they're Christians, right? They're kind of Christians, you know? And uh, the only example I can think of on the moment now is Judas Priest, and that is just such, I didn't even listen to them. It's not a great example, but you you know what I'm saying? Like any Christian word anywhere, right? Like I was ready to flow in that direction, because that's really what I wanted, and if we... If we don't, if we're not honest with ourselves and we don't see that dynamic in ourselves and we don't see that temptation in ourselves, that when somebody says something that's not true or biblical and yet it sounds good and it's spun just the right way and it's got a little bit of a hint that we're like, oh, yes. And so this lady's leading and and these people are buying in because they feel such pressure to follow. And how horrible this is in the name of Jesus. And again, this is Jesus' story. I mean, this is the one who left heaven and lived and died for us. And now his story is being taken and used to lead people into this horrible lifestyle. Can you imagine how upset? I mean, Jesus is, is upset. I mean, he shows up and his eyes are like blazing fire, right? And his feet are like bronze. like I mean, he's going to crush something. He's going to Superman laser beam somebody. People in the room are thinking, "Stick to the script, Jason. Stick to the script." Thank you. Bless him, Lord. Bless his heart. But we see in Revelation 2:21, we read this earlier. We still see the grace of God in this situation. What does Jesus say? We read this earlier. He says, "I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling." Like, I mean, how, like if somebody was using your name to lead people astray and to do horrible, evil things in your name, I mean, I would show up ready to chop some heads. Yeah. I mean, it's good. I don't have authority or the power to do it, but guess who does? Jesus. And he could show up and be like, oh, no, no. Right? And this is over. But what does he say? He says, I've given her time to repent And she is unwilling. He's drawing her in. And I just want to say this. Look, if our Christianity or our representation of God is not such that we realize that he is desperate for every person to be saved and to come to a saving knowledge of him, we need to make sure that our understanding of God is that he is longing for every person to find salvation and be restored to him. If we ever present God as the one who can't wait to punish you, then we are doing the same thing that this lady did. We are presenting a false truth about God. God loves people, and he's longing for them to come to him. He's longing for them to change. He sent his son to die that they could be washed clean so that his relationship could be restored. He's longing for that. And if there is this woman who is using his name and speaking these things, and he still says in that moment, I have given her time to repent, I've come to her, Direct her, but she is unwilling to do it. We see the grace in Jesus. But listen, the, Jesus is full of both grace and truth. And, and there's truth that comes in Revelation 2.22, the very next verse. It says this, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery, and that's spiritual in this sense, spiritual adultery, with her, suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Now, this brings up something that I don't like to talk about, okay? And the reason I don't like to talk about this is because people will take this and they will twist it into false guilt, and people will take this and they'll twist it into condemnation of others. So this is a very sensitive subject, okay? Um, but the, it's, it's true, we see it in the scriptures, that sickness can be a punishment for sin, but that is not often the case. Now, Again, you say, wow, that, I mean, that just opens a whole Pandora's box, right? It's like, oh my goodness, sickness can be a punishment for sin. Oh, does that mean, oh, I got a cold, and so I, that's God punishing me for sin? No, listen, this is not something that happens often. This is not something, you can see this is an extreme case that Jesus is talking about, okay? But I want to give you one other example, just so you know I'm not kind of pulling something and just saying. In 1 Corinthians 11:29 29 through 30, Paul, talking about communion, says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now, what is Paul talking about as it relates to communion? The rich people would get there because they didn't have jobs, and they would eat all the communion before the poor people got there. And he's talking about the disparage between rich and poor people. He's not talking about you being guilty and eating communion. We're all guilty, and we eat communion. We find forgiveness in Christ. That's why we take communion all at the same time. Have you ever wondered why we pass it and we hold the elements, and then we take it all at the same time? That's because we want to know that everybody's equal. Everybody's on the same footing. It's not rich people and poor people or people we like and people we don't like. We all take communion together. But Paul says, listen, disobedience to the Lord can be a root of sickness. Does, it doesn't happen very often? Please. Please, like I said, it's just a sensitive thing because you know you could take that and you be like, oh, I'm guilty and oh, I've got a cold and I must have sinned against the Lord. You know? No, we live in a broken world and there's colds. I'm praying for all the teachers and the students right now that are going back, going back to school in those environments. Or you can say, oh well, that person, right? I know I knew they were a sinner. They're sick. Man, I mean, that's just terrible, right? And, and horrible. So, so we want to look at that. But at the same time, let me just say this, and I'm going to move on, and we probably won't talk about it for another 14 years, just to be honest. <laughs> when I do get sick, in fact, all the time, whether I'm sick or not, I'm searching my own heart. And I'm saying, God, is there any way in me that's unpleasing to you? Is there any way that's leading me in, in this path? Because we know that sin does bring death. And uh, we, we, can, we can just totally make that a metaphor and say it brings death spiritually, and it does, but also in our physical bodies. And so, God, I search before you, and I say, God, is there anything in me that's unpleasing to you? And uh, so Jesus says, listen, um, I'm going to make her, she's going to suffer because of this sin that she's committing and leading these people astray. And 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 using this here and but if but you don't you don't you hear it as soon as she's willing to repent, and even even into that, if you're willing to repent, you can find forgiveness. So Jesus says, Revelation two twenty three, I will strike her children dead. Period. And again, we're in the midst of a metaphor. Jezebel is not her name. Jezebel is a type from the Old Testament. He's speaking metaphorically, and he's talking about those who would spiritually be espousing and saying these same things, right? He's like, listen, I'm going to cut that off. I don't want people led astray in my name. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Guys, we are going to stand before God one day and give an account for our lives. The things that we do, the the way that we use the influence that we have, God is going to hold us accountable. You know, this lady in this church used her influence to lead people astray, and she was a false teacher. And I want to give you, just real quick, three ways that you can recognize a false teacher, okay? And uh, it's interesting, uh, I, I, I think, maybe I think too much, but I just thought, man, like, maybe there's somebody in the crowd who's kind of cynical like me, and thinks, how can you as a teacher tell me what to listen to for a false teacher? What if you're a false teacher, right? And, I, and so I thought about that, and I thought, I don't know a way around it. So here we go. Um, <laughs> How to identify a false teacher. Number one, there is no cross or discipleship or holiness. There is no call to sacrifice. There is no call. I mean, Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? Take up your cross and follow me. If somebody comes to you and the gospel that they present to you is just, just sort of a walk in the park and sort of just friendly and wonderful and everything's good and there's no sacrifice, right? There's no cross. There's no discipleship. There's no bringing yourself under submission. That's not the true gospel. The true gospel uh, has for us uh, the, the cross. It has for us discipleship. It has for us holiness, otherness, being like God. The second way to identify a false teacher is that they don't use scripture or they use scripture, but it is removed from context. Like, I I have a Bible degree. I, I know the Bible pretty well. I can make an argument for anything from the Bible. I can take a verse out of context, and I can bring it over, and I can convince you that the Bible says anything I want it to. But... If I want to stand up and give you my opinion, I'm going to cut the Scriptures out. If I want to take a verse out of context, then you need to be equipped and ready to recognize that. When someone uses a verse or a passage of Scripture, then the the context means, I understand what that meant to the original audience. When Paul wrote that letter to that church, what did it mean in the original context, right? And and there's tools to help me discern that. What does it mean, that verse inside the chapter that it's in, right? Right? That's a, that, that verse is in a whole chapter. What does that chapter mean inside the whole book of the Bible? Right? What does Ephesians 4 3 mean? What does Ephesians 4 3 mean in Ephesians 4? What does Ephesians 4 mean in the book of Ephesians? What does Ephesians, how does it fit inside the New Testament? How does Ephesians fit inside the whole Bible? You see, if you take one verse, I don't even know what Ephesians 4 3 is. That was just something I pulled off the top of my head. I could be getting in trouble even as we speak. But if I just take a verse and I just throw it out there, and then I tell you, oh, well, this means all of these things. And listen to me now. And it means all of these things that you really want to hear. Then you'll, oh, man. And you, and you can very easily warm up to that. And you can very easily say, oh, well, yes, Ephesians 4.3, right? And that means that I can do whatever I want okay? I have no idea. Somebody's going to tell me immediately after service what Ephesians 4.3 is. In fact, I've lost half of you because you're looking Ephesians 4.3 up. (laughs) But listen, that verse has to be in context. The scriptures have to be used in context. And the third one is this, the gospel, if they teach you the gospel leads to an easy life or guaranteed blessing. The gospel does not lead to an easy life. In fact, it often leads to criticism. It often leads to difficulty. You know what? You, you can be living apart from God and the enemy doesn't care too much about you. But if you start declaring the goodness of God and telling other people about God, the enemy is going to come against you. And, and he's going to make life more difficult, not easier. There are no guaranteed blessings on this earth. Our rewards as believers are found in heaven. Not here on earth. And if somebody says, oh, if you do this or if you do that, then there's going to be a guaranteed blessing. That's not how God works. He's not a vending machine. And that is false teaching. Now, if the teacher says, avoid sin and you avoid the death that sin brings, yes, that's true. Right? I cannot shoot myself in the foot. But that's not a guaranteed blessing from God. (laughs) That's me actually following the commands of the Lord. And so it's important for us to recognize, I I hope I'm not the only voice that you're listening to. I mean, we live in an age where there's YouTube and there's uh, all these things, and you can hear other speakers and people speaking to you, hopefully speaking life into you seven days a week, right? And you're reading other things and you're watching other things. We need to know these these three things that we need to be mindful of that won't lead me into a, a bad place. You know, this lady... In the church, she used her influence over others to lead them in a negative direction. And we need to, as followers of Jesus, recognize the influence that we have to point people toward Jesus. You know, we live in the West here in in the United States and and in our country. We live in a way where it's kind of like, I'm going to be over here and I'm going to do my thing. And you be over there and you do your thing. And I'm going to believe what I want to believe, and and it's okay. And you just stay out of my business, and I'm going to stay out of yours. And we live in this kind of individualized way of saying, well, I'm in my four walls. I'm in my family. I'm in my thing. And that can lead us to a, a false assumption that we don't have any influence over the people around us. You know, you have immense inherent value from God. And your value means that you have influence over the people around you. How you speak, what you say yes to, what you say no to. Even if you withdraw from a situation, somebody sees you withdrawing and thinks that withdrawing is an option because you withdrew. Listen, we rejoice that we are valuable, but we don't appreciate the influence that comes with it. We rejoice that we are valuable, but we don't appreciate the influence. That comes with it. You're created in the image of God. Jesus died for you. What value does it impute? I I talk to people, they collect baseball cards. How much is that baseball card worth? Guess how much it's worth? However much somebody's willing to pay for it. How much are you worth? The Son of God died for you. We rejoice in our value, but we neglect the influence that comes with it. Thyatira is an example of somebody who used their influence to point people away from Jesus. How are you using your influence? Don't look at me in the face and say, Well, I don't really have any influence. Yes, you do. If you're a quiet person and you say, Well, I don't really talk a lot, guess what? Your words carry even more weight than the loud people like me. You have influence. And Jesus looks and says, how are you going to use that influence? Not, I mean, it's great to use it outside, but what about in here? This lady was in the church. How are you using your influence in here? Are people going to be encouraged because you were at church today? Are you going to speak life over people? How are you going to use your influence today? Let's pray together. God, we rejoice in who you are. God, we rejoice in Jesus that's died for us. Lord, we pray that we can represent the gospel and the love of God in a way that points people to the true nature of who you are. God, of your deep and abiding love, of your desire, God, to lead us in the eternal ways. I pray, God, that your spirit would be upon us, encourage us, strengthen us. God, I pray that you would convince each of us of the influence that we carry the opportunity to speak life over the people around us, the opportunity to make godly decisions, to have godly attitudes that influence others. God, I pray that we would remove ourselves from the excuse, oh, well, that's just my personality, or, or oh, uh, I, I'm not uh, really valuable, or I'm not really important, and I really don't have influence. I pray, God, that we would recognize that as a lie. And Lord, as these students go to school, that they would see and understand the influence that they have over others. God, as we go to work tomorrow, that we would understand the influence that we have uh, in that environment. God, as we walk into our homes and as we speak words into the atmosphere, God, that we would recognize the life and death power that we have. Lord, that people would recognize we are followers of yours because of the love and the encouragement and the honor and the grace that flows out of us. Lord, lead us, Father, as we desire to follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. As our prayer team is coming uh, this morning, if you have a need that you would like to pray over, they would love to pray with you in just a moment. I'm going to dismiss everyone, and they're going to head toward the doors that way and uh, no one's going to notice if you're coming this way, but if you have something that you want to pray about, these folks would love to pray with you, encourage you. Maybe you have a big appointment or an interview this week. Maybe you have somebody in your family that needs touched. Maybe you need some direction or guidance, and you want to pray to the Lord and ask Him. There's power in agreement. So I want to encourage you to come and pray. if. if if that's on your heart this morning. God, I pray your blessing on your people as they go from this place. Give them peace that passes understanding. Peace that is so strong in their hearts, God, that those around them take notice. And they come and they ask, what's different about you? What is the reason for the hope that is in you? And our answer will be, it's Jesus. Jesus, he loves me and he loves you. God, I thank you for this peace and I pray this blessing on your people now in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Peace be with you.